Hello and welcome to the Arena Craft Podcast. My name is Arjuna. I'm your host. I'm joined by a very special guest today. His name is Aaron Gertler. Today we're going to be bringing you a discussion about standard and we're going to be focusing on a couple of innovative decks that Aaron has shared with the community over time. Now, if you guys aren't familiar with him, his name on Arena is Little Beep and he kind of burst onto the scene or at least burst into my awareness a while back. He had a ramp deck based around mass manipulation which did really well and launched him into number one mythic on arena for like a number of days, uh, which was was pretty awesome. So that's how I first heard about him. Without further ado, I'll just bring you onto the show. How are you doing, Aaron? Doing great today. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to connect up with us. So Aaron, I thought that I'd just start by asking you, what's your history with magic and how long have you been playing? Sure. So I I remember uh, learning to play when I was probably seven or eight years old from a, a neighbor's older brother who was an occasional babysitter, and I probably drove him crazy trying to play with the magic cards as much as possible. He was fairly possessive about them, maybe didn't want my grubby little fingers all over them necessarily, but uh, <laughs> relented sometimes, and I got the very basics of the rules from him. Uh, this would have been, I think, playing with like Urza block cards or something like that. It's a long time ago now. I guess I experienced magic at like summer camp and other random times, but the first time I ever owned any cards was a pack of Scourge I bought. I kind of came in during Onslaught Block and was interested right away in sort of reading all about this game. I uh, bought a few issues of magazines like, uh, I think Pogo might have been the name, like the old, old Magic the Gathering magazines that existed before magic websites really were a thing. The one I remember reading was, uh, I think it was just called Scry. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I ever owned it, but that that's that that kind of generation of yep. things. Yeah, totally. I would totally. read like these tournament results and the decks would be full of cards I'd never heard of. And I didn't really understand what made the decks tick, but I just saw that people were constructing these, these well put together machines that looked much better than the random piles of cards that I could come up with. And I was very uh, envious of their uh, access to cards and their ability to kind of, uh, kind of know everything about this game. And so I found myself digging into the archives um, as I grew older and websites like star city games kind of came to my consciousness I would kind of dig into the archives, read people like Mike Floors or uh, Benny Smith, just these like old old school magic writers, and kind of digging into what they had to say about the game. Who's the beatdown? <laughs> Who's the beatdown? That sort of thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I wasn't really processing it fully. I don't think I had uh, quite the level of maybe mental maturity to be understanding kind of everything well enough yet. I certainly didn't have a regular play group or anything. I would go to Friday Night Magic. I would occasionally draft. I'd build... I built an elf deck, which is my first uh, standard deck ever, and I could actually win some games with it because this was when Skull Clamp was legal and anything could win games uh, when yeah, Skull Clamp right. was legal. Didn't, didn't take that much work to win with Skull Clamp. <laughs> but uh, I played very casually, kind of stopped around the middle of high school, uh, picked it back up, I think, after college when I sort of wasn't as busy, had a first job, didn't really have a social group and just had something to occupy my time and found uh, myself wandering back onto. Magic Online drafting a lot of, uh, I guess, Zendikar and Shadows over Innistrad blocks, uh, trying to build standard decks, uh, looking for, I guess my my philosophy has always been trying to find the thing that isn't like the most obvious thing for people to be doing. I didn't want to play Affinity back when Affinity was the deck. I didn't want to play, I guess, Blue-White Flash or Black Green Delirium when those were the decks. I always wanted to see, find something that could uh, surprise people, something I felt like I could make innovations to and not just be sort of following along with the dozens of pros who are already fine-tuning some tier one strategy. Although, of course, there's nothing wrong with playing a tier one strategy. That's uh, I mean, They exist for a reason. They're good decks and are hopefully fun to play when they're good. But that's, uh, I guess, where I came from. And then I getting into where I actually got good at the game, I really began to take tournament play very seriously when I, weirdly enough, the 1v1 commander format came on the Magic Online and this was a really obscure format that maybe many of your listeners will not have experienced or ever played before. Not a lot of content came out about it, but it was just a commander, but you're playing against one other person. And the uh, format was full of people, basically. Um, it was extremely brutal to try and be like a fun player, and it was very competitive. And so the format quickly became this like 
a few dozen people who took it very, very seriously and were constantly fine-tuning decks to beat each other. And because it was a singleton format, it really rewarded people who could look obsessively at a pool of 10,000 available cards and figure out, oh, what's the obscure thing from, like, Ice Age that actually is legal in this format and works because we're not just playing four copies of every good card. We have room to play around. And so you'd get these uh, like spells like Fire Covenant that no one's ever heard of but are actually very good in Commander because of the, the quirks of the format having more life and um, being limited. Now, I'm curious, did this come out before Baral, Chief of Compliance, had been printed? Oh, was that card in the format at that time? That's a good question. Baral actually was in the format at the time um, and was quickly the first dominant deck. However, I want to I wanna speak up while I have the chance to make a point on history here. <laughs> I don't think Baral was broken in that. Oh, really? Okay. I think it was a good card to ban. I think it limited, I think it limited deck construction in that it made it very hard to build anything that wasn't a brutally fast aggressive deck or another blue deck. Right. But... Baral was actually sort of, I think, a little bit behind behind the eight ball against the decks that sort of sprang up in its wake. So something like a good mono red or mono black aggro could perform pretty well against it. But also so could uh, decks like uh, the first deck I really liked in that format, which was just a three color deck using partner commanders and Timna the Weaver. Timna the Weaver was actually probably the most broken card in the history of the 1v1 commander format. And uh, should I say what that does for the listeners? Uh, I guess we don't have the chance to pull up a card image. It's, um, yeah, lay it on three us. Ma- it's a three mana for a black-white um, commander with partner, meaning that you could play two commanders at once, and so many other commanders could pair with Timna, but Timna was usually the constant in those decks. And she had the ability, if uh, at the, in your second main phase, if any of your creatures has dealt combat damage to an opponent this turn, you draw a card and lose a life. Um, and technically, you draw a card and lose life for each opponent dealt damage, but because it's a one versus one format, um, it's just one card a turn. But she was essentially a Phyrexian Arena on a stick. If you played her with a bunch of small evasive creatures, she was drawing you a card a turn starting on turn three. Um, and when paired with any kind of blue commander, so I used a blue black partner commander, other people would use like a blue red or a blue green commander, um, you basically had access to lots of good card draw and counter spells and efficient spells, and meanwhile, you're just drawing an extra card every turn. And so you could pretty much go under a lot of decks and unless people could interact with you very well, like in combat, which Baral couldn't do at all, uh, you were going to get ahead very quickly on cards and just um, right. they wouldn't be able to catch up. And so the format eventually devolved into lots of different sort of three and four color good stuff decks, usually partner commanders, uh, Berea Ethereum Shaper, which was a uh, just a four color commander that was like, so powerful on its own that it could sort of go toe to toe with the commanders. And then occasional broken monocolor decks that sort of were the combo decks of the format, just like Green Ramp or... Um, mono blue planeswalker to fairy, uh, just trying to pull off infinite time walks on turn four or something. Nice. So nice. Kind of degenerate, but also a lot of fun to play. A lot of room to brew, just because the uh, there were enough sort of commanders with broken abilities backed up by the usual parcel uh, collection of good cards that you could kind of do a lot of things in the format. And unfortunately, it was never popular for obvious reasons. It was really hard to build decks and extremely brutal to be a new player in the format because. Um, there was just so much play skill involved in every game because there were so many things people would pull out against you. Um, so I'm not surprised it didn't take off, but I loved it. I brewed. I, I managed to top four a couple of challenges in the format. To be fair, these were challenges with like 30 players, but still, it was fun to to get free free tickets off these like ridiculously overpriced tournaments when no one plays in them and the prize structure is uh, static. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's one of the charms of Magic, though, is that like you can find your little particular corner of the of the Magic verse that you're really excited about, and like, yeah, if the conditions are right, you can like you can be an innovator and you can be someone who's like setting the pace. And um, I think you know, I think that's what so many people love about the game is that there are just like many many opportunities to do that, whether it's your local meta game or whether it's just like you get very into a, a format that's not very popular. Um, like you're saying, you know, I just think it's, uh, I think that's like one of the things that keeps a lot of people coming back to the game, you know? Yeah. And I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and so I, I guess to continue, I'll try to, uh, to speed through some bits of it here. I know that was a long, a long uh, uh, inter- interlude about my favorite, what still probably is my favorite format. If they ever brought that one to arena, you'd never get me off, but <laughs> nice. So after, after 1v1 Commander went up, I played, I played a bit of Brawl, which was the closest I could get to that feeling, but wasn't the same. That was a format where Brawl actually was broken, and there was just a much smaller card pool, sort of uh, less less room to play around. And from there, after Brawl sort of turned out not to be much of a much of a popular format either, I moved on to Standard and started kind of looking and checking out decks people were trying. I built a bunch of decks that I, I liked a lot and sort of starting around Kaladesh, so... Um, always looking still at, at tier two or below decks, but 
um, trying to find the things that were most fun. Yeah, you're just reminding me that Kaladesh was actually on Arena, like right, right at the when the beta was released. Yeah, I wasn't actually playing Arena at that point. I think I didn't really get involved in the beta. Um, I should mention, I guess, that I was actually trying to grind Moto for money a little bit at that point in my oh, life. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, I was doing a bunch of other part-time jobs um, and didn't end up making too much profit in the end. But it was like was trying to like play seriously, qualify for for Pro Tours. Never got anywhere. Never got that close, really. Partly because I refused to play the best deck at any point. Just maybe a mistake. Those can be conflicting goals, right? If you want to play a sweet deck and if you want to qualify for the Pro Tour, <laughs> sometimes evaluate your goals there for sure. Yeah, my dream is to uh, hopefully make those things not not exclusive. But um, so there, I was playing decks like Blue White Panharmonicon was beautiful. I loved that deck. Uh, playing oh, a lot of Oketra's yeah. Monument, um, doing some Vampires back when Vampires wasn't good because Soren hadn't been printed yet. Yeah, who who knows? Like when when the last time Vampires were good in like any competitive format? So it seems like a tribe that's like always trying to get there, but just never quite edges its way. Yeah, and then that beautiful three month period where we could, where you could do it. I guess maybe before Kethis was discovered, I was took about a month break around the time Kethis came in, so I have no idea what the Vampires Kethis matchup looked. So playing those decks, and then um, I think the first deck I actually wrote about, the one that sort of got me interested in writing articles on Reddit, um, was Anguished Affinity, which was a really fun deck developed by Zerasex um, on Reddit that I sort of picked up and fine tuned a little bit, and then ran through a bunch of of leagues and made videos about and so on and. Uh, it was just like a, a deck back when Black Red Goblin Chain Whirler decks were pretty much all you could play at the time. Uh, it was this bizarre pile of terrible cards that just had a bunch of do-nothing artifacts that made servo tokens and then played like Herald of Anguish and these like improvised cards that barely saw the light of day and constructed. And somehow it was a terrible pile, but it just was also a really fun deck to play and just crushed people who weren't expecting it. And that was when I sort of realized, ah, maybe there's something to trying to like find other people who are brewing and see sort of what's, I don't know, for whatever reason, this was the first time I realized I had the real feeling that, ah, I think if I spent enough time fine tuning this, it might actually be good enough to, to, to do some work somewhere. Um, so if, if people want to look that up, that's sort of uh, the first, the first Reddit post I ever made on spikes as, as far as I remember. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. So, you know, mentioning Reddit, that kind of brings me to how I discovered you, which was during that stint when you were number one, playing now i'm trying to remember it was a bant ramp deck is that correct so the first deck that so the 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 reddit post that inspired me was a blue green mass manipulation deck back before i suppose this would have been ravnica allegiance's standard before war of the spark came out that was that was blue green and the decks the deck that i built was was blue green and sort of posted about on reddit this was um before anybody wanted to splash teferi in the deck i mean people people always want to splash teferi in the deck because it's teferi but I actually almost always preferred the two-color version of the deck. Um, this, so this was a blue-green mass manipulation deck, and I'll talk through it a bit maybe for, for viewers who don't remember it or who are trying have tried to forget it and succeeded. Um, this was a... <laughs> you were playing Llanowar Elves, you were playing Incubation Druid, you were playing um, first uh, first maybe um, Growth Spiral and then Paradise Druid after Paradise Druid was released. and you, So just this bunch of cheap ramp creatures and then... In my version of the deck, in addition to the usual Nissa and Hydroid Crisis package, you played uh, four cards that sort of defined the deck. The first were the the four mana instant package, and before Teferi came along, playing four mana instants was like a great idea that you really wanted to be doing. Um, so these were Chemistry's Insight and Frilled Mystic. The idea being that on turn three, hopefully you'd have four mana because you ramped on turn one or turn two, and you would just leave your opponent to like spend their turn staring at your mana, and you had four mana open, and you could have Frilled Mystic. So if they played a spell, they'd get punished. Or you could have Chemistry's Insight, and if they didn't play a spell, you would draw two cards and sort of move along with your game plan. And this is the underlooked part of the deck because it wasn't really part of the like ramp big spell package, but I felt like it was very important. And when I looked back at gameplay footage, I'd be like, oh, so many of my so many of the games you win, you just put your opponent in this bind where they're not sure what to do because you're able to play at instant speed. That's something I'd forgotten about that deck is that you're running Frilled Mystic. I feel like that card was like always around the fringe, you know? It's like like everyone knew its power level, but I also think that was before uh, Simic was like so dominant in the format as well. Um, so that, that's kind of cool, actually. I, I didn't know that that, you know, that was kind of an innovative use of that card, I think, as well. Yeah, and before Teferi came out, this was like, uh, I mean, the big decks at the time, I think, were like Sultai midrange and Esper midrange control decks. And that's right, yeah, Esper was huge. Yeah, and I, I think Mono Red had sort of was also sort of big, but against anything but Mono Red, Field Mystic was just an incredible two for one because they kind of 
they, they thrive, those decks thrived on being able to play spells on turns three and four. Right, right. And it could just trade with pretty much whatever creature they put down. Yep. It's, uh, your Jade Light Ranger doesn't matter that much. Um, so that, that was a big part of the deck. And then the other part of the deck that was more notable, and the reason it got names like Simic Thief or Simic Steel, was the package of Steel Spells. This was something like six to eight copies of the cards um, Mass Manipulation and Entrancing Melody. So Mass Manipulation was your giant... Cast this for eight or ten mana, take their two or three best creatures or planeswalkers, and just end the game on the spot kind of card. Um, and uh, unless they were playing counter spells, this was something that's very difficult to stop or get around. Um, and then Entrancing Melody was sort of your small ball. This is how you win games against aggro card, where on turn on turn three, you just take Mono Red's Gitu Lava Runner, and suddenly they're, they're down a thing and can't attack you anymore that turn. Or you, on turn four, steal the Wild Growth Walker that was about to grow from a J-Light Ranger, something like that. Just a a little bit of early disruption to help you survive until you have Nissa and Krasis um, getting getting into their business. Um, so this deck was just, for whatever reason, um, I think I might quote Sam Black here, who, who wrote an article on Star City Games about a bunch of variants of the deck. It just felt like you were playing a different game than other people if you were up against any other mid-range or control deck in the format. Uh, Mono Red was, was always difficult, but the fact that you got to um, just steal everything, all the kind of medium creatures that Gruul and Sultai were playing was really good. Um, even before Nissa, this strategy was still fine because War of the Spark, of course, powered up everybody equally. Uh, Nissa made your deck ridiculous. But even before Nissa, just even playing something like Vivian Reed was fine because she would find Hydra Crises and find you lands and just help you build towards those giant mass manipulations later. I feel like this was the first deck that I was aware of. Maybe it was happening before this, but it was the first time I was aware of people actually running mass manipulation in the main deck. There was this idea when the card first came out that it was going to be maybe like a breaker or like a, you know, just like a strong sideboard strategy in slow matchups. But I think this may have been the first time I'd ever seen anyone like ramping into mass manipulation or making it like a really core part of their game plan. Would you say that that is about right? I'd say so. So I should mention um, that this was not... The original idea of playing Mass Manipulation in the main deck of a blue-green ramp deck was not my idea. If you look at the Reddit post under under my name, which might be linked in the show notes or something, I'm not sure. Um, oh, I can find it, yep. Yeah, you'll hopefully find the link that I where I give credit to the person who developed the deck. I don't recall the, the Reddit name off the top of my head, but somebody sort of put together a prototype version of this deck that was running cards like Gift of Paradise. This was like way back before we had Paradise Druid, so, oh, yeah, so we had yeah, to yeah. lean on these second-tier ramp cards. And I think I... Refined that deck a little bit, but the the original idea that just mass manipulation was a good card and you should play it was was sort of theirs. I think also historically speaking, it was run in gates, so the deck that just played a bunch of growth spirals and circuitous routes could also make use of mass manipulation. But at that point, it was more of a fringe, like oh, we can do whatever we want, so why don't we throw a mass manipulation in there? It wasn't really as core to the deck strategy as it was for the blue green deck. Um, so that that deck wound up being so a little bit of the history of that. I. After I hit number one with that, um, a friend from college found me who happened to be part of a, an up-and-coming sort of magic testing group slash team and asked me if I was interested in joining. And this was sort of how I got really deeply involved in Magic End. At that point, it was like sort of a fun, like I was playing on Arena, I was playing Standard, I was trying to get to Mythic or whatever just to, just to have fun with it. I didn't ever expect to get to number one. Um, I had no real desire. I just happened to, I think, it felt like finding a magic sword in a rock and I just got to pull it out before anybody else found it. It's like... Anybody playing this deck who had happened to find it would have would have done very well with it, I think. Um, but I just got a little bit lucky. Well, I do think, though, I think that something that, you know, sets apart people such as yourself or like Sam Black being a really famous example is just people who are willing to say, huh, like this card's actually really powerful and willing to just like actually consider what shell it would go into. What happens a lot in magic is, is, you know, you have these heuristics or these shortcuts of looking at a spell. Like I think, um, casualties of war is like another example, which is really relevant in standard right now. Cards like this where you think, oh, like that's really powerful, but it's a six CMC card and it's not, you know, whatever busted planeswalker. So I'm, I'm going to skip it. I think just a lot does get left on the table. And I think something that I really appreciate about more recent design from wizards is that they've been making some of these crazier over-the-top powerful cards that had been kind of easily dismissed for a long time i feel like standard over the last maybe two years or so that i've been really following it closely has been it's just really punished cards like mass manipulation or like casualties of war i think they weren't particularly great strategies when you were playing against team or energy decks or 
uh, some of these more like aggressive Hazard decks and stuff like that. I think it was really easy coming into these modern sets, you know, like Guilds of Ravnica and and Forward and certainly Eldraine, you know, War of the Spark. They were just printing all of these really over-the-top six-cost cards like Command the Dreadhorde, right, is another card where if you'd looked at that card two years ago, you would have just been like, this card is a joke. This is a Commander card, maybe in some really fringe strategy not something you put in a in a deck when smuggler's copter is legal for sure exactly and so i feel like wizards has simultaneously pushed the power level of cards but they've also been pushing them up into these higher cmcs i mean out you know outside of stuff like oko right which is obviously a whole different conversation but i i guess that's just what i wanted to reflect on is that i think it's really cool that we get to play standard during a time in which a six cmc sorcery or like an 8-CMC sorcery, is a viable thing to do. Yeah, and personally, I've always considered mass manipulation to be a 14-CMC sorcery. <laughs> right, so, so there you go. That's there your you baseline. Uh, I totally agree. I think I know, I'll notice that like of all the bannings that have happened in Standard over the past few years, you don't really have to ban the big, expensive, fun card, other than Emrakul, which I guess the problem with Emrakul was that it really wasn't supposed to be a 7-drop. Right. Uh, other <laughs> right, than that, exactly. you, you mostly... It's hard to go too wrong if you're printing like big, expensive, splashy sorceries. Usually there's uh, there's ways to get under and attack those strategies. It's not really possible when you're talking about, say, an, an Oko. So I, I was invited onto a testing team, and this includes players like... Uh, so it had a... Uh, some dedicated arena grinders, people like Kanye Best MTG, who I think at, at that point had hit number one in a previous season with Mono Red. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, frequent streamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, frequent streamer. Uh, people like VTCLA and X File, who kind of big Twitter personalities talking about their brews and kind of, um, at least VTSLA was a major moto trophy grinder. He had Bloody, who was starting to, to really rise to prominence as a streamer at that point. And then just a bunch of other folks who were just all good players and, um, sort of played a mix of arena and paper tournaments. So tenacious stargazer rage, um, people who have like done, done well in a bunch of points and like moto PTQs and such. And so it was just this fun group of people, um, all of them strangers to me other than my friend, but we kind of quickly got to realize that we had, we shared a common bond in magic. And, um, I probably bothered them a lot because at the time I really just wanted them all to play mass manipulation at all points. And I wasn't really interested <laughs> in other decks. <laughs> Guys, this deck's really good. <laughs> Guys, this deck's really good. But I got, uh, I got bloody to play it on stream a few times. Was able to do a bit of, uh, a little bit of, of, of coaching and just kind of, you know, co-oping on a stream and talking through plays at one point, which is a really fun experience oh, to, nice. to actually play magic in front of a uh, hundred or more people was not something I've really been to had, had done before. Um, and eventually in the Moto PTQ, we all decided to play, um, a variant of blue green mass manipulation that had our latest favorite edition, which was Ripjaw Raptor in the sideboard as the answer to, to mono red, which took the, took the most common deck in the format. That, that card just slaughtered mono red. It was so good. And that, I mean, Goblin Chain Whirler killing Lana Wells meant that mono red was like your worst matchup by a long shot before Ripjaw Raptor came in. And then suddenly the matchup felt almost even. And then everything else was just like, an absurd, just you, you, you smash them, it's not close kind of feeling. Imagine you're, you're the mono red player, right? And you're sitting there with a chain whirler in your hand and there's a Ripjaw Raptor on the table across from you and you're just like, wow, like, can I ever cast this spell? Yeah, that was, uh, it was, I mean, I was playing cards like Ix- Ixali Diviner or something like these, like, it's a 1-4, maybe it blocks against Monored, I'll play that in my side. I don't know why it took me so long. <laughs> To come up with with Ripjaw Raptor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't even remember it was me. It probably somebody else suggested at some point just because yeah. that's the nice thing about joining this community. I should mention at the time that I joined the Arena Desklist Discord, which is a fantastic place, a fantastic oh, yeah. resource for anybody who wants to to hear a lot of standard discussion and sort of get in touch with what a lot of other good players are thinking. And I'm guessing that Ripjaw Raptor originally came from that Discord because a lot of things I think of as my ideas were actually developed by the hive mind there, as will happen. No, it's a great resource. Yeah, Arena Deckless, 100% fantastic podcast and community. They're doing really great stuff. Definitely agree. Definitely worth worth the price of subscribing to the Patreon. It's the best magic resource I've ever found, um, and it's not particularly close. Yeah, so we all played the second of the PTQ. Um, I got disconnected and lost uh, oh, for no. the key match early on. Uh, oh. Kanye made it all the way to uh, all the way to day two and was and basically lost his winning in on a a top deck status statue plus Goblin Chain Whirler and the last turn of game three just like heartbreaking. Got him so close to qualifying in his first tournament, but it still gave us all a lot of energy. And so, um, so we, we've kind of stayed together since then. Bloody got to go play in an MCQ, qualified as a streamer. Um, one of I think uh, one of the other members of the team is now qualified for for an MC, and uh, we're we're all starting to have more success. I think continuing on, I guess, in my personal history and how it relates, um, 
played as much blue-green and then Bant Ramp as I could get my hands on. I think Bant uh, eventually became the most popular version of the deck for tournaments, and I think won a Grand Prix and did really well at some other Grand Prix. Just because Teferi is a very good card, and having access to like Time Wipe and um, Shalai gave you these mid-range kind of tools that were good in a way that the, the blue-green couldn't really replicate by itself. Um, I played I played a bunch of versions of the deck, Bant and Sultai and so on, and always had fun, but I think once uh, Field of the Dead came out, the, the party sort of was over at that point. Uh, yeah. That was uh, as hard a counter to the strategy as I could ever imagine being printed. I mean, Tristani was bad. Yeah. But Tristani was never showing up in 30% of everyone's standard decks. Yeah. No, exactly. I, I was going to say Tristani is like, that's the nightmare for the Steal Your Stuff deck, right? <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. basically a hard counter. But um, yeah. But yeah, right. Yeah. Then Field of the Dead just kind of made so many strategies invalid, really. Yeah, so when that, when that was out, I sort of spent a lot of time beating my head against the wall trying to find some way to get around the twin powerhouses that were Field of the Dead and then Vampires, and just th- those decks did a really good job of kind of covering the field and making it so that uh, most brews just didn't survive the encounter. And there were lots of decks you could play at that point. I had a lot of fun with uh, Jeff Hoagland's Yarok Field of the Dead deck, for example, which was like a Sultai ramp deck that didn't just didn't just fold to like getting your field on Mordigo, and that was a great deck. But um, I just wasn't finding anything that was like I could call my own. Um, and then I guess uh, Eldrain, so I took a kind of a short break from standard, just like taking a, a month or two off to kind of do other things in my life, work out my job. And then Eldrain came out and I was pretty excited to come back in and brew with that and um, discovered pretty quickly that even though everybody was very excited about Oko, that I was uh, much more excited about the card Lucky Clover. Uh, and I think I, trying to remember what happened, I think I just saw... Obviously, Edgewell Innkeeper was a very powerful card. I think I heard um, Sam Black discuss that on on his podcast with uh, Paulo Vito Damodorosa and uh, yeah. Mike Sigrist. Mike Sigrist, yeah, Pro Points. That's another great show. Yeah, so I heard them discuss sort of the black-green Edgewell Innkeeper deck, which uh, I think Sam Black, in his Sam Black way, was promoting the most extreme combo variant of it, which actually did have the Lucky Clovers and so on, whereas uh, the, the most popular version of that deck was like Questing Beast, mid-range, that just happened to be running Edgewell Innkeeper as a way to draw some cards while you were playing your Murderous Riders and so on. But I, I sort of tried to do the most extreme combo version and found that it actually seemed like it just worked really well. To describe the deck a little bit for, for posterity, the idea was that Edgewell Innkeeper is already a broken engine, but the Lucky Clover can also be a broken engine, and that you're hopefully doing one of those broken things on turn one or turn two, and then just from then on, almost all your cards are just two-for-ones. You're able to grind out control decks very easily by recurring things with double midnight or double order of midnight, getting back two creatures from the graveyard, or with Falmire Knights drawing two cards and then drawing another card after you cast them with your innkeeper out. You're able to take on aggro because you have double murderous rider to kill two things. Um, you can take on Oko decks because you have a bunch of main deck planeswalker removal that beats the Okos and Nissas. Now, remind me, I, I saw um, Andrea Mangucci playing a variant of that deck, which was, uh, it was running the Beanstalk Giants and Casualties of War. I guess it, the idea was that it was using Clover plus Giant to ramp into like Casualties on turn four or something like that. Was that what you were playing or is that a different idea? Yes, that's a different variant. So the version that I eventually settled on after trying a more traditional version that had like Questing Beast and so on was that I realized that just trying to play like a mid-range game against Oko when you're not playing Oko was just a fool's errand. <laughs> yep. That just you're going to run into Wicked Wolves and you're going to die. And so the best, the, the what wound up happening was that it played out, I'm trying to think of the best comparison for in like other standard formats too, but it was just a, all your cards are bad, but you just have so many of them. That doesn't really matter, even if your opponent's interacting favorably at every stage of the game, you can still just build up enough momentum to just kill them. And the fact that Smitten Swordmaster let you do this without actually attacking was a really big deal. I think yeah. by the end of the format, I had a, something... I, I used, by the way, one other tool I'd like to recommend while I'm here is untapped.gg, a website, an overlay that tracks your arena matches and lets you figure out, okay, what am I actually beating? Like, what actually happened after I added this sideboard card to my deck? Um, and so able to just tracking the matches I played with the black green clover deck, I was something like 70% against all the different Oko variants over the course of that season. Um, and of course, play skill does play into that a little bit. Oko is a tricky card to play, um, and kind of using it correctly against versus incorrectly can make a big difference. But the fact that you just were able to do, you, you were able to grind with the Oko decks, you were able to grind with field pretty well because they were sort of used, relied on wrath, wrath effects to take out your creatures. And if you can, be bringing everything back from the graveyard or replenishing or playing Midnight Reapers, that's not as big a threat. So like Field felt like it was a, a reasonable matchup as well. 
And I just played this deck, hit number two on the ladder at one point in the season, never quite got to number one, but just like was having a, a blast with it. Um, it seemed like people on Reddit were having quite a bit of success too. I'm not aware of that ever having much tournament success, but deck was great. Um, it was a lot of fun. And then uh, Oko got banned and suddenly the best matchup disappeared. Uh, and, or not the best matchup, maybe that was probably like Esper Dance or something like that. Uh, but the, the, a very good, very popular matchup disappeared and was replaced by a bunch of decks running Mayhem Devil and Fire's Invention, which are just horrendous matchups for you because uh, uh, you don't want to play, you don't really want to play against decks with four main deck Deafening Clarion if you can help it. That's like a little much. <laughs> no. No. Um, or decks that can kill your innkeeper for free while continuing to play their game. It's yeah, just not uh, good. decks attacking you with like seven, five hasty flyers and stuff. It's just like not really what you're set up to beat. <laughs> not at all. That deck was very metagame dependent and was not necessarily the most powerful thing to be doing on its own. And so I, I sort of jumped ship the second I realized that, oh, wait, this, this is really how the meta is going to go. We're not going to find some fancy new deck that takes over. It's just going to be fires and and food and like mayhem double food decks that were already like the, the the tier two things and now they're just tier one this brings us to about you know when i discovered you was i was reading on reddit and i saw this post that you made about the team of clover deck which you had gotten back to number one playing on arena so yeah tell us about like how you transitioned into into playing that deck and what the inspiration was absolutely so i still like lucky clover a lot <laughs> I still thought that the idea that you play a two-mana artifact that then goes on to double three or four of your spells is just sort of fundamentally like a really advantageous thing to do, especially because so many of the adventure creatures were just good on their own. Like Murderous Rider is a good card. Brazen Borrow is a good card. You see these cards all over the place, even in decks that can't double them. And so I thought maybe there's still something to be done with Lucky Clover here. And so I tried to build the original build of the list was a Sultai deck because I love Murderous Rider very much. And... um because I was, I didn't want to play a bunch of tiny creatures into the Fires Invention meta, I sort of thought, what if I, what if I sort of move away from Edgewell Innkeeper a little bit and just go for like double Brazen Borrower, double Murderous Rider, double Beanstalk Giant, try to play a, a bit of a bigger adventure build. Um, and then use Fey of Wishes as sort of the, the card that naturally, uh, goes together with all of this to, to go play like a, a big sideboard strategy. And the Sultai version of that deck was, was fine. It, it may even be that some Sultai version of this deck could be the better version. I just wasn't able to find the, the path. I think the fact that Brazen Barrow being double blue and Murderous Rider being double black on both sides just made the mana much more challenging than it is for the Teamer version. That's tough. And, and I think you made a good point as well in your post about how, and I ran into this too, was that I was like, Clover plus Murderous Rider is a really sweet combo. But then you get into these awkward spots where like you're at eight life against mono red and you have that Clover out and you're like, okay, great. Do I drop down to four just to gun down two creatures? Or worst case scenario, your opponent's staring you down with a bone crusher giant and you've got your Murderous Rider in hand <laughs> with your Clover and you're like, I, like, how much damage am I going to take this turn? <laughs> so Yeah, and the, and the Black Green deck didn't care about that so much because you had Smitten Swordmaster, so you could easily gain back whatever life you were losing with shenanigans like that. But in this deck, you didn't have any natural life gain at all. And it just, it just wound up being like all the pieces didn't quite come together. It felt like it was a card or two short or like an extra, a dual land short of really synergizing the way I wanted it to. And then fortunately, just as I was beginning to get frustrated playing the deck and think maybe this is a dead end, I, I played against a Goif on Arena, uh, a player who's was, uh, ranked pretty well at the time. And uh, they were playing something that seemed very similar. I was very excited to see Lucky Clovers and Fae of Wishes on their side of the field as well, except they were Teamer. And they just ran me over and it was not a close match at all. And they were able to do this because of the card Escape to the Wilds, uh, which turns out to be the perfect... So Escape to the Wilds, five mana sorcery, green and red. Um, reveal, uh, exile the top five cards of your library, and you can play them until the end of your next turn. So, And you also get to play an extra land that turn, so you can kind of get that explore effect going. So the key here is that you want to be playing Escape to the Wilds with a bunch of spells that are cheap, because otherwise you don't get to play them all before they go away. And adventures let you sort of break this by having the spells be cheap on one side and expensive on the other side. So you can play Escape the Wilds, and then the next turn you can go uh, Stomp, Heart's Desire, uh, Petty Theft, do a bunch of stuff, and then you have a bunch of creatures sitting in your exile zone that you can play later because they are no longer bound by Escape the Wilds. And so this card goes really well with what the adventure deck was already doing, and it basically just ends up being like a draw five for five much of the time. Um, yeah, and, is, and a ramp spell, right? Which is and a ramp like, spell at the same time. It's just an incredible rate. Plus the power of Bone Crusher Giant, which is just kind of a, a ridiculous card at the worst of times. Yeah. Um, 
convinced me that probably Teemer was the way to, to try going with the deck. Yeah, I just want to pause there because again, what we're looking at is the use of one of these kind of clunky, there's like a five mana sorcery, which I think a lot of people wouldn't even first pick in that draft and just saying, ah, oh, yeah, like that might be cool. And again, like in commander or something, right? But I'm never actually going to play that in standard. So I think that was a really heads up thing to do was to think, let's say I play a clover on turn two, let's say I play fertile footsteps on turn three, that's already five mana. And then on the next turn, I can slam this down and have mana available to me on that turn. That's pretty disgusting, to be honest. Plus, you just have basically like a full grip of cards to play from at that point. Yeah, like the deck, would it be all right to monologue for a few minutes on what I think makes this deck kind of good and some of the elements of it that I feel might be a bit underappreciated? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. All right, monologue, monologue time. Listeners, beware. <laughs> um, so the version of the deck, so I noticed that my, my team opponent was also playing Edgewell Innkeeper, which is a card that um, I, had, I had not been necessarily trying in this Ulti deck because I, I wanted to see if just playing a more control shell made sense. But Edgewell Innkeeper is actually actually just an incredible card and you shouldn't sleep on it. Just the fact that you can play just like a normal curve. Like the fact that your opponent has to kill it and it's a one mana card already generally puts you at a mana advantage in a lot of games where the opponent's forced to spend turn two or turn three getting rid of your one drop. Um, and then late in the game, because your adventure creatures tend to tend to be good spells on their own, you'll often just go spell, spell, spell and leave a bunch of adventure creatures sitting in the exile zone, which means that if you cast an innkeeper on, say, let's say turn five or turn six and you have seven mana available, you can just go innkeeper, bone crusher, brazen borrower, and suddenly you've cast three spells that turn, you've drawn two cards off of the adventure creatures that were just sitting there ready to be played. Um, so the deck has a lot of velocity that way, thanks to Edgewell Innkeeper. So the first thing is just like, it's a good Edgewell Innkeeper deck by itself. The second thing I should mention is that all the cards in the deck are just good. Um, people who see it will sometimes call, well, it's kind of a pile, right? It's not playing like the Cat Oven Synergy or the Fires of Invention Synergy. But if you look like all the cards in this deck are actually super heavily played cards just in the standard format by themselves. Bloodstruck Beast just shows up in a bunch of decks. Uh, Brazen Borrower and Bone Crusher Giant show up in, in some cases, maybe most of the decks that play their colors. Uh, Fae of Wishes maybe mostly sees plays with, with Fire's Invention, but it's still a card that is recognized as being pretty strong. Beanstalk Giant is even starting to show up in some of the food decks now because it's just a ramp spell that doesn't get killed by a Deafening Clarion. Um, so all these cards are individually actually pretty good. And then if you happen to put down a Lucky Clover, they all just become incredible. Um, so it's sort of, you, you're not, you're not falling behind too much. Even if you don't have your lucky clover early, you still get to play a bunch of reasonable magic cards and play a game, which is really exciting. Cause once you lost once upon a time, that was one other thing that was a problem for the black green deck. The black green deck was playing cards like foul miner and smitten Swordmaster, where if you're not getting some kind of extra card advantage off them, they're pretty bad. They're just not great magic cards. Um, and without once upon a time, you weren't finding edgewell keepers often which meant that it was like a lot harder to get value reliably off some of the bad cards in your deck. Whereas I'm almost never unhappy to just draw a Bone Crusher Giant in, in most situations that I will encounter in a game of Magic. That card's just strong. Yeah, and once you start getting those clovers down, it becomes insane. Like, tell our fine listeners how much damage a Bone Crusher Giant does if you have four clovers in play. That's a 10 ball for you. <laughs> that's a 10 ball. And that's one of the things that, you know, after I played the deck for a while... It was so interesting to me how you find these interesting lines. Someone thinks that you're playing a ramp deck, but then you turn out to be playing an aggro deck, but then actually it's a control deck, but then it's a burn deck, you know? It's like you do the last eight points of damage with burn or something. I just, I love how it's like attacks from so many different angles. And you took the words right out of my mouth there. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just, the, the deck can kind of switch roles very easily, which was something I also liked about the black green deck, where the black green deck actually was a control deck, even though it looked like an aggro deck and could play like an aggro deck with some of its curves. And the reason it was a control deck was because in the long game, you inevitably would win with Smitten Swordmaster if, if your opponent didn't do something crazy like remove your graveyard, which nobody really wanted to do at the time. So the team or clover deck, yeah. So the fact that you're just playing cards like Brazen Bar lets you sort of play a tempo aggro game, but also you have this ramp, this, this kind of ramp combo finish where if the game goes long enough, your opponent inevitably has to be able to beat you dealing them 24 to 30 damage with the combo of Beanstalk Giant plus double Fey of Wishes off of Lucky Clover, fetching Fling and Expansion, Fling the Beanstalk Giant, cast Expansion, copy the Fling, and that's basically 2x damage where x is the number of lands you control. And that's something your opponent will inevitably have to face down if the game goes long enough and they can't kill you before then, because you, you eventually just draw all the cards in your deck, because you have Escape to the Wilds and Interval Innkeepers helping you just go through card after card after card. So that's like a big strength of the deck, is it just has this kind of inevitable combo finish, and then Finally, of course, because the Fae of, Wish, of Wishes deck, I should talk a bit about the flexibility of it. 
the the fact that you can sort of adjust what your opponent's game plan is, even in game one, by fetching answers from your sideboard is, frankly, it's it's actually one of the weaker elements of the deck. I think it's important. Like, you obviously should be playing Fae of Wishes, and fling expansion is important. But Teamer, the problem with Teamer is it has by far the worst sideboard cards. And this is why I was so desperate to find a way to make Sultai work, is, like, you really just can't kill a creature with five toughness without going to, like, great lengths. Um, you need to play... I'm playing a copy of Frogify in my sideboard right now, and believe me, I would much prefer not to be playing a copy of Frogify <laughs> in my sideboard. The card's actually fine, but it's, like, a little embarrassing when I when you realize that Sultai got Assassin's Trophy and Noxious Grasp. Uh, or, like, uh, there's no Casualties of War-type card that just blows fires out of the water. To beat fires, you can beat fires. I've beaten fires many, many, many times. But you have to kind of dance around them. You, have, you get your Return to Nature, and then you get your Counterspell... And then you get your, like, sort of Frogify to take out their Cavalier. And then you get your Chandra to kill their other Cavalier. And it's this long, grindy... You can't just close them out the way that you can if you were playing other other sideboard options. Yeah, I, I found playing the deck against Fires, it seemed like a lot of my best matches against them was something like maybe I get a double bounce off of uh, Brazen Borrower and manage to get their Fires off the field and get their other stuff off the field for long enough that I can, you know, swing in with a couple beasts or swing in with the Beanstalk Giant, something like that, you know, just basically play a tempo game with them. That's been one of the most successful vectors I've found playing against that deck specifically. But it's a tough matchup, I agree. There's no easy, clear path to victory there. Yeah, which is, yeah, and it's just like one of the reasons I think the deck is probably not, you know, if I had to say, uh, if there's a very good player who's talking to me and they say, what deck should I take this big tournament where I'll, all this money is on the line, I would say, well, maybe maybe not this one. I'm, I'm honestly not sure how good the Fires matchup is. I should have a, a brief detour here to mention that um, I can't remember the guy's first name, but JJ Rock on Twitch, uh, some, something to Praz, a, a French professional player, has been playing, started to play this deck a lot, and then in this beautiful Twitch VOD that I would recommend people go and find if they have the chance, I'm not sure when it expires, but um, he basically uh, found a friend to play Fires against the deck over and over again, realized he wasn't comfortable with the matchup, and then made a bunch of dramatic changes to try and improve it. So he has a version of the deck that plays uh, four copies of Growth Spiral and I believe four copies of Hydroid Crisis. Oh, wow. So he just ignores, he just cuts Edgewell and Keeper and Lovestruck Beast and ignores sort of the whole small ball, play ground creatures and attack on the ground strategy, um, which frankly doesn't work that well against cat decks either. No, Lovestruck Beast no, against doesn't. cat is not what you really want to be doing. Um, and just decides to go way over the top by like leaning into the ramp and leaning into just having a million mana to use a Fae of Wishes and Hydroid Crisis. And I tried that version of the deck. I think that might actually be better against like the top two decks, the fires and the food decks. The problem being that you still sort of just dot you without Lovestruck Beast, you just can't beat Gruel realistically most of the time. And you just lose to a lot of random aggro decks on ladder. So the version of the deck that I've posted about on Reddit and that I'm still playing now is is really meant to be like an absurd ladder deck. So to quote my untapped.gg stats, which I kind of reviewed a bit before this episode. Right now, I am 19-0 and 0 in my ladder play against green-black decks. Very into <laughs> green-black adventures. Like, it's a, which it's, a, it's a solid deck. It's tier 2. It's not that popular. But it just the, you're just playing a slightly bigger version of what they're doing. And I, I think that the true matchup, obviously, there's no such thing as a 100% matchup. And I'm sure that I've lost a couple of those matches if I were against maybe, maybe many of the matches if I were against a Reed Duke or somebody similar. But um, people who are not ready to kind of face down the multiple ways that you can value them out... You just kind of crush them. Or like Flash, for example, is kind of a laughable matchup, at least for the oh, yeah. version of the deck. Yeah, Flash has been so satisfying, especially if you if you get a Clover under that counter magic, it's basically game over at that point. Yeah. They yeah. just can't they just can't counter anything at that point, and their creatures just die to your bone crusher giants and just everything they have lines up badly with everything you have for the most part. So yeah. those decks are not the most popular, but they're sort of right underneath of them. And you just smash a lot of that stuff. Or like blue-white control is also, if you sort of play play tight against them, it's a hard one to lose again because their counter magic doesn't line up favorably with you. And at some point, you just force them to tap out for time wipe because they don't have any ramp. And then once they tap out for time wipe, you resolve escape to the wilds and then things just proceed from there. The card that I've actually had the greatest challenge against playing the deck so far is planar cleansing. If you don't have a chance to nab a counter spell out of your board... Or, you know, if you just don't draw it in your post-board matches, that can be a tough card to beat. If you've been spending the first number of turns of the game, like getting down one or two clovers, getting some stuff on board, and then you just get planar cleansing, it, it can be a little bit hard to recover after <laughs> that. Yeah, planar cleansing is definitely rough. Um, I think something that I learned to do eventually against that deck once it happened to me a few times was 
not really playing out the second clover unless I had right. some way to get value off of it. Right. Um, cause mm-hmm. really once you have one clover out, you're sort of already getting as much value as you're going to get out of like your brazen borrowers and your love struck beasts making an extra token doesn't matter that much. Um, so that part has been kind of helpful, just like parceling out edgeville innkeepers carefully to make sure you can always sort of the idea being that if your board gets wiped in, whether it's with a planar cleansing or a time wipe, you always want to be able to have something coming down after that that can get you value, whether it's escape the wilds or a spare innkeeper or a spare clover, something like that available. That's something I really took away from your Reddit post. This deck in particular seems like the kind of deck where you want to slow roll your innkeepers a lot of the time, unless you have like an immediate, if you can play Faye on turn two to draw a card, then that's probably fine to play it on turn one. But otherwise I've found myself just waiting until more like turn four or five to drop an innkeeper. You're not trying to get ahead on any metric except just maybe lands and cards at that point in the game. A lot of other adventure decks, you want to slam your innkeepers as soon as you can, because you have a lot of really cheap creatures that you want to get out. Yeah, that's actually a critical difference between this and the Black Green. The Black Green deck just wanted to get Innkeeper out as soon as possible because you had cards like Falmire Knight and a bunch of random two drops that just drew you cards immediately. Because all the adventure cards besides Fae of Wishes cost three in this deck, Innkeeper is really more of a slow accumulate value card where usually you'll play it on turn four alongside a three drop. Or heck, on turn seven alongside a couple of three drops. It's almost like, it's almost like it takes the role of Hydroid Crisis in the deck. It's like a late game card that draws you a bunch of cards while also letting you develop your board. Except in this case, the board development's not like one big flyer. It's just like all the creatures that were waiting in exile were ready to come out. Yeah, it's a really good analogy. I like that a lot. Yeah, the deck that... Um, this is what happens when you think about a deck in the shower all the time is you come up with all sorts of analogies to, <laughs> to talk about what it's doing. Um, I found out... I, I actually played in the matches that at one point I think I was like sort of dreaming about like like literally dreaming in terms of just like team or clover lines. Just like... <laughs> yeah, like a growth spiral and a clover and a bone crusher and blah, 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 just sort of, yeah, the Tetris effect, but for, for magic. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we discussed like a few of the specific matchups. You know, the matchup against fires can be pretty challenging. That's one way you really might want to examine your sideboard tech. I've found the matchup against oven to feel really kind of 50 50 to me. I feel like a lot of times it depends on whether I get my tempo plays at the right time. I've I've actually had some really awesome games where maybe an opponent would have a trail of crumbs and an oven. And if you can just like, if you can bounce a couple of foods at the right time, maybe when they don't have mana, then they just run out of gas really quickly and then you can run them over. But, uh, you know, I've found that matchup to be just very very dependent on who draws what you're not running a trump like questing beast or something like that which really helps you lock up the game i i wonder if you have any more thoughts on that particular matchup and how to get ahead yeah it's a weird one so i i find the matchup to be a bit lopsided in that the the versions running mayhem devil feel slightly unfavorable to me when i'm up against like a, a opponent who seems to know kind of what they're doing and how to like kind of slow roll the cards to protect them at the right time. Yeah, Mayhem Devil is so good. That card is just so good right now. It's just like I was so happy when Goblin Chain Roller left the format. Yeah, and then they just <laughs> they just print a new one. What are you doing? Stop it! Let me play X ones. This is like Chain Roller X three. I know it's so savage how like they can drop that card and then just somehow ping three times on the same turn. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, so that that's. So the black red, the, the versions playing red are very tricky. I found that I found in my games against the black green version that it actually felt very, it feels like you're pretty favored there. Yeah. They just have a much harder time taking innkeepers off the table and brazen borrower rec- is, it represents a real clock against them. Yeah. And as long as you like prepare early on to be able to like counter the first casualties of war, um, they usually just sort of your, your late game tends to outscale their late game as time goes on because you have a lot more mana and they usually just can't easily stop you from bean stalking them for 30 at some point. Um, however, the black red version just gets to be more aggressive because they can ping you down with cat much more quickly thanks to Mayhem Devil. And Corvold's also a tough one. It's just yeah, sort of that Corvold paradigm of the big creature you can't really kill. Although I will say, Brazen Borrowing a Corvold in response to the sack trigger going on the stack before they draw any cards is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty good. Yeah, I've also had a fun, I've run into some Bontus on the ladder as well. And if they sack a bunch of their lands and then you, you bounce the Bontu back to their hands, sometimes they just can't really recover from there. Yeah, I think tips for the matchup. As you said, bouncing food is really good. The deck might seem like it has an endless supply of food, but really they sort of need food to make food in the sense that sometimes that like first food or two is really what gets the ball rolling on all their value engines. And if exactly. you can bounce that early, and if you make sure to bone crush your giant or gilded geese when they come down, um, you'll often like I, I will say that I've definitely 
in a few cases, just like Bone Crusher the Goose on turn two, not going to wait, try and double it up for Mayhem Devil, not going to try and wait for a Paradise Druid to come along, just kill the Goose, because if they get that second food made off, and that's sort of the the ticket to, to things getting rolling, or if they the, if the Goose lives long enough to like activate a Trail of Crumbs for free, yeah, that's just think of yeah, I just treat it like an Edge Willing Keeper in those in those kinds of matchups almost. Um, not every time, but that's like one way to think about it. Um, other things to note are that like Sorcerer Spyglass is really critical. Just having that be able to lock up ovens is one way to contain them. Um, the fact that those decks now run so many copies of cards like Thrashing Brontodon is a little annoying. And Vraska too. Vraska makes you feel pretty bad about <laughs> about your Spyglass, you know? And I mean, if she's not killing Clovers, I guess it's it's could be could be worse. Right, but, right. There you go. There you go. Yeah, this is a matchup. This is why I think the Depraz version might be a bit better because the the way I've found to kind of grind through them is just to use your own sideboard grind. So the fact that you can go get Plain Wide Celebration and Wants and Future out of the sideboard to recycle the things they're killing often means you can replace effects faster than they can actually get things going. Um, but yeah, it's just every matchup. This is the thing I love about the deck, but it's also frustrating when you're trying to talk to people about it. Is that the matchups are so different. Like, I've had games where I've won against food because I just had two early Lovestruck Beast and was able to kill their Mayhem Devil before they could kill all my 1-1s, and then they just can't beat 5-5s that well. And I've had games where it went for, like, 10 turns, and I won by by my playing wide celebrating back three Bone Crusher Giants and, like, burning them out or something. Just, like, all these different ways the games can flow, because they, of course, they also have their aggressive draws and their, like, long game value draws. And it's sort of really... The way you line up, I mean, it feels like all the matches are pretty epic, um... Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 hard to find good general rules, I think. No, it's true. And it, one of the things I actually like about the deck is that I don't feel like it has any terrible matchups. I haven't played against a single deck where I thought, oh god, I can just never beat that deck. Yeah, that's the power of just playing good cards in your deck. Yeah, exactly. And just having a value engine that's so strong and having access to, to so many sideboard cards with your fair wishes, I feel like you're always in it. I feel like the deck has a lot of really good top decks. There have been so many times where you top deck your escape to the wilds at the right time and it just closes out the game. If you have even one clover down, like top decking any of your adventure creatures can be amazing. So that's something that I really like. And and I would love to see, I feel like it hasn't gotten, it hasn't really been taken very seriously on the pro scene, I would say. But I would really love to see like the Reed Dukes of the game try this deck out because it, it kind of reminds me of Oko in that there are so many different lines of play and I would really love to see like a really skilled player make those assessments and see what they prioritize. Yeah, that's that's what I would like to see too because I know, that's the thing is I feel like my, my play skill does not quite measure up to what the deck can do. Like I notice mistakes I make. It's, it's not so much like the basics of sort of what to target first. If I'm thinking clearly... I can like you know make sure that I'm not getting blown out by like witches oven sacrificing the creature I was targeting with my bone crusher giant or whatever. But it's really those like I've definitely seen games where I lost. When I was wait a minute, if I had like two turns before I used my fave wishes to get like a backup counter spell. If I just got fling at that point, I actually had a way to like drive them into corner and just throw a giant at them to end the game. But I wasn't thinking aggressively at that point because I still felt like I was playing defensively, even though realistically they probably couldn't have killed me. And I was like noticed like you. Being able to think two or three turns ahead is a huge advantage. I think someone like a Reed Duke or an LSV or Apollo Vitor de Rosa could could do that in a way that like I just can't do. I will say that um, that a few really good players have streamed with the deck a bit and have found some success. So it's, it is currently seems like it's Ali Antrazi's main squeeze on Arena. I was going to say, yeah, I've seen Ali play it. And uh, that's pretty sweet. And I, I feel like I even... Oh, I, I saw Li Shi Tian playing it a little while. Ooh. I have to look that up at yeah, some point. Although he was playing it when I first came on the stream and then he switched away from it and then he switched back to it. And like on turn three of his first game, he was like, oh, this deck is shit. And then he just quit out. But I was like, oh, come on, man. Like you, you didn't give it a chance. Oh, dude, that was what Crokey, that was Crokey's reaction to the deck. I, I watched Crokey's basically play a game where he just had the win locked up for like five turns, but just couldn't figure out what things to wish for from the sideboard. And was just so <laughs> frustrated with everything. I'm just like, Oh, you had the win. You had the win like three uh, turns ago, dude. It's painful. It's, it's painful. It's tough. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it takes a lot of getting used to mentally. Um, yeah. I think, I think maybe I would have like thought it was bad too if I hadn't started out by playing Sultai Fate, by like playing the Sultai version for like 20 matches before just to get like the basic patterns down. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree that there are, that a good player, there's a huge like play skill return on the deck. And I, I certainly am not playing it to its full potential right now. Yeah. 
Totally with you. We're kind of getting to the end here. I just wanted to ask, what are you seeing right now in the standard matter? Like, what do you think are just some of the angles that are most important to think about? And does this feel like an engine format to you, like everyone's been saying? Like, what's your assessment of that right now? Yeah, I will say that my like mindset is kind of warped. There are certain decks that I just think I like playing and I like playing because I feel like they... It feels like there are certain kinds of decks that can be the best deck right now, and I think I'm not the first person to say something like this. But as you mentioned, it's a bit of an engine format. You really want to be able to get lots of value every turn and not have the value stop. Like, you don't want to ever find yourself just in, like, random top deck. Hope I find something mode. Like, every good deck is going to have a Castle Vantress plus Fires or a Trail of Crumbs, something that, like, keeps them going and, and finding new stuff. The the patterns in the decks, I think this is true of every deck I've actually had success with in, in my time as a, as a serious standard player has been these are decks that like can use all their mana every turn and like are able to leverage more mana into more value. So whether this is through a card like Mass Manipulation, where it just literally more mana is more stuff, or it's playing a deck with Lucky Clover and a bunch of adventures where you have all your spells are actually two spells or three spells, and you're able to kind of make a bunch of different things happen depending on how much mana you have available and what the board looks like. That's always the direction that I'm looking in when I'm looking for like, is this is, does this seem like a reasonable thing to be doing? So... I think there's I think there's a best blue green ramp deck out there. I don't know if anyone's found it yet. I think people have tried a bunch of variants, whether it's uh, the Luis Salvato sort of Sultai build that he brought to the MCQ, or whether it's the sort of quasi duplicate Cavalier builds that have seen some some play on ladder. I feel like there just must be a good Hydroid Crisis deck in this format um, that can sort of go over what Cat's doing, and I just don't know where I don't know what that is yet. Isn't that interesting? How you know Hydroid Crisis kind of comes in and out of being one of the linchpins of the format. And it's so hard for me to track exactly what that is or why that is. You know what I mean? For example, back when Crasis first came out and it quickly went into the Saltai builds, you know, then that were playing, um, you know, explore creatures and stuff like that. It was really on top for a while and then it fell away. And I thought, if anything, I thought that Oko leaving the format might make Crasis better and and i'm not saying so oko leaving the format makes simic a lot worse because it was just the best card right but i also think that when your format powers down slightly i think like that's an excellent time to be playing a card like crisis which is always it's always a threat and so i just i think it's interesting that we've kind of seen a downtick of the crisis now and maybe it's a reflection of the fact that people are just attacking on a different vector crisis doesn't really matter when people are trying to go for a fires combo kill or when people are just cat ovening you into oblivion yeah i will note that like the thing about fires that i found is that even though they have these fast combo kills, if you can like actually kill their first couple of Cavaliers just by blocking them, they often don't have like very many, they don't have much recourse against that. My favorite thing about playing against the Fires deck is they just don't have a lot of raw card advantage, especially now that Drawn from Dreams has become a lot less popular and Sphinx has become a lot more popular. That's true. And they're not, you know, a lot of them aren't playing Fey anymore. So it's kind of like if their plan A doesn't work, they're kind of out of gas. Yeah, and that's why I've liked, I think that Krasis actually match, lines up pretty well, because something that can actually trade with a Cavalier of Gales is hugely valuable. Um, so that's, that's somewhere I might look. I think that, I think if the, if Lucky Clover were banned tomorrow and I had to find some other deck to play, I think I would either be looking at Blue Green Ramp, and I think one of their strategies that appeals to me on a very different level, and this is something I have a lot less experience with, but it's just like resource depletion decks. So Saffron Olive, I guess, played a black-white discard deck on his budget magic series the other day that actually I've seen I've seen versions of that kind of floating around where people are playing uh, sort of cards like Burglar Rat and Yarox Fenlurker and Davriel just to get a bunch of discard early and then Doom Foretold. I do think Doom Foretold is actually a very strong card right now, and it's just I think the Esper dance builds where you're relying on a bunch of cards that literally do nothing is maybe not the ideal way to do Doom Foretold, but I like the idea that you're playing these slightly proactive cards that sort of take away your opponent's cards. Um, cards that can actually like attack a Teferi when it's on the battlefield, that sort of thing. And you're pairing them up with these like kind of heavier hitting black white mid rangey cards. I don't know. It's just, I noticed that when I'm playing with Lucky Clover against other decks, discard feels bad. Like you can draw cards if you want to draw cards. That's fine. Just don't bother me. I'm doing, I'm over here doing my thing. <laughs> Versus like if you thought erasure my clover or if you like force me to choose between keeping the land I want and like the interactive spell I want, I'm like really angry at you. Yeah, so I don't know if that's good or not, but that's like, it seems like a promising direction that feels a little underexplored, in part because like, I think black and white just offer so many different mid-range options. I think the core engine of Doom Foretold and like discard spells might be where you'd want to start, but then there's a lot of different top-end things you can try, some of which like, 
I don't know. I feel like this might actually like Seraph of the Scales is actually pretty promising against fires if they don't have uh, Teferi out or um, like Cavalier of Dawn actually is kind of Oko on a stick in a really limited way. Yeah, that's true. I, I do remember playing against one deck running Cavalier of Dawn, which I thought was interesting. That's a card. And in fact, the Cavaliers in general, I kind of feel like it's their time to shine in the format. I've been seeing all of them. You know, I've seen Cavalier of Thorns is coming back and that guy kind of disappeared for a while. It's like a worse Oko. I mean, uh, sorry, yeah. uh, Golos, right? It was a worse Golos. But yeah, it really seems like this is where at peak Cavalier right now. Yeah, I just deeply appreciate that cycle. It's just, they're they're all just very well-balanced cards that I don't think anyone's ever going to break the way Primeval Titan got broken. But they all just, they're all just like exactly good enough to be good in their in their respective, like, I don't know, places. I just remember when Cavalier of Gales came out and people were like, well, Narset's a card, this must be terrible. Whoever want to brainstorm on their creatures? Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I know, like, rewind standard any amount, and that just would have been, like, one of the best cards ever printed. <laughs> I think it's a reflection on the power level of the format right now that a card like that isn't on top. Another card that I have my eye on right now is Gadwick the Wizened. I feel like that card, we've not seen the best of that guy yet. I think yeah. someone's going to figure out how to really leverage that. You know, we've seen it as like a sideboard trump in like some of these Saltai decks maybe, but I don't know. I feel like that guy has legs. Yeah, before I was playing Lucky Clover, actually the very first deck I tried to build post-banning was just, uh, I think it was like two Gadwick, four Krasis, just like four Voracious Hydra, just play all the X spells and a bunch of like sort of growth spirals and nisses and so on and just seeing like maybe... Again, maybe this is Hydra Crisis time to shine, but Gadwick is Crisis 5 and 6. Felt interesting. I think to really leverage that card correctly, I think that a 3-3 by itself is not good enough to make Sphinx's Revelation like a super bomb again. Because I just don't think Sphinx's Revelation would be like a good card if it were in the format now. <laughs> I know. But um, I think if you can lean into the second ability and find a way to like have Gadwick in a deck where both you can ramp into him, but you can also play enough cheap blue spells to make the tap ability meaningful... I feel like that's where you start to get the synergy really shining, where he's helping you live and providing a card advantage. And I think Luis Salvato tried to do this, like Growth Spiral and Brazen Borrower are both cheap blue spells that you can use with Gadwick in like the Salvato deck. But I, I do agree. I think Gadwick is, is really potent and we haven't seen kind of all that card can do yet. Um, I'm also most, like, mostly surprised by Torbran. Like, <laughs> like, like I, I get why Mono Red isn't good, but I feel like I feel like just somehow playing like a Gruul deck that incorporates Torbrand, I guess this the mana is just so bad. Yeah. That's I think when like when when Theros comes out and you can play like Temple of Abandon again and just have like another green red dual land, at that point I'm gonna start looking to see like, oh, maybe this is maybe this is what actually lets Torbrand shine. That's true. It's a really good point. Torbrand's one of those cards where like every now and then you just get completely destroyed by it on the ladder. But in general, it feels like another card which really serious players haven't been taking that seriously. Yeah, or good load. Temple of Malice with Torbran and Mayhem Devil and like Judith the Scourge Diva. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's a lot of red sources of damage floating around. And I think that, I feel like that's eventually going to happen once we have those dual lands. At least someone will yeah. try it. I don't know if it's going to work. No, I, I love it. I think that's fantastic. Well, I think that's all we have time for for this conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. It's been really awesome talking with you. Before I leave, where can people find you online and, and what resources do you have that people can check out? Yeah, it's been a real pleasure, Arjuna. Thank you. So online, um, you can find me on Reddit. I'm just Aaron Gertler on Reddit. I try to just go by my name in most places. It makes things easier. Um, and then... Uh, that will take you to the posts that I've written about these these various decks that we've discussed. So Mass Manipulation, Teamer Clover, Black uh, Black Green Clover. Um, and I have a YouTube channel. If you just search Aaron Gertler YouTube, it'll, it'll pop up for you. That's got gameplay videos, and I've started to upload. I've, I've only very recently begun to do Twitch streams, but um, I'll be uploading my, my Twitch uh, stream videos onto my channel as well, so you'll see them. Um, you can also follow me at Twitch at surprise, twitch.tv slash Aaron Gertler. So I... For now, still an occasional content producer. I'm not sure how consistently I'm going to be doing it since I do have a full-time job outside of Magic, but um, I do like doing this a lot, and the more people who are following and watching the content, the more likely it is that I'll, I'll end up producing more of it. So I guess thanks for any attention that you care to, to spend on me in a world where there are so many incredible Magic players. Uh, and it's just been, I don't know, an incredible pleasure to be part of this community. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Aaron. That's awesome. And just by the way, do you stream on Twitch with any regularity or is it just kind of like when you find the time? It's really just when I've, I've only done two streams so far. The first one was attended principally by my teammates and my wife. And the second one, we got up to about 20 people watching concurrently. Oh, nice. Um, okay. So I think, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'll be doing it with with that much regularity. I think if I get to a good ladder position, you're more likely to see it. Because I think uh, the best way for me to get some viewers is just to put up Mythic Top 10 or something. Yeah, yep. uh, exactly. But uh, I'll, uh, yeah, so who knows? Follow me on Twitch to find out. Yeah, well, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you top eight something awesome. You know, I feel like that's only going to be a matter of time. So does your team have a name, by the way? Or maybe you said it and I missed it. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a matter of a bit of a bit of contention, I think. So uh, we uh, original team name was the Ripped Raptors. This is for two reasons. Number one, because we were really excited about Ripped Raptor at the time <laughs> as a card. And because Kanye Best, who's, who's one of our kind of our, our leading faces, uh, can bench press like 450 pounds or something insane like that. He's, okay. just a, he's a okay. very big boy. Um, so the ripped, ripped Raptors came from that. Um, it was rendered by Wizards of the Coast uh, when, when Bloody went to the Mythic Championship. Um, she was uh, said to be on team Ripped Jar Raptors, which isn't right. Oh, uh, no. Things wrong. <laughs> um, we, might, we may just be the Ripped Raptors forever, but I think we may also eventually look for some kind of team name that is more, I don't know, uh, less reliant on a particular obscure Ixalan card to make any sense. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, so for, for now, Rift Raptors, and uh, maybe it'll just be that way forever. And yeah, look for look for more of us. Uh, we, we're starting to get more and more. We're we're sort of halfway getting our players into MCs and halfway just like inviting more and more skilled people to kind of come and join our collective, which is maybe the the other way to get clout. So some mix of that, and and we're on the rise. That's awesome. I love to see that, you know, because I think there are a lot of people who you know, they know about all of these like hyper famous teams like Channel Fireball and TSM and stuff like that. And um, I think it's it's like a nice reminder that like anyone can form a team. You can find like the best players in your area. You can find like the players that you're seeing on the ladder that you really like, you know, you can you can do this. And yeah, see if any of your Facebook friends make a Facebook post about being number one mythic and just grab them before. All right. Well, thanks so much, Aaron. Thank you for listening. This has been awesome. You can find us on all the places. We are Arena Craft Podcast on Twitter. Uh, I just started up a Discord recently, so you can find the link to that in the show notes. We're going to be returning every week with more awesome interviews. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Three.